You're listening to the Aftergrad Podcast. I'm Robert Kane. And I'm Victoria Gilbert. And we're your fellow aftergrads trying to find clarity and security in the postgrad moment. Our first ever guest on the Aftergrad podcast is often credited with coining and popularizing the ubiquitous term adulting, a word and experience we've all become too familiar with. Kelly Williams Brown is a New York Times bestselling author whose first book, Adulting, How to Become a Grown-Up in 468-ish Steps, was an immediate success. So much so that Reese Witherspoon recommended it in her book club and J.J. Abrams' production company, Bad Robot, was set to produce the book's TV adaption. Since then, she has written two more books titled Gracious, a practical primer on charm, tact, and unsinkable strength in year 2017, and then Easy Crafts for the Insane, a mostly fun memoir on mental illness and making things in year 2021. In the past, Kelly has worked as a reporter, a copywriter, a brand strategist, and is currently the media and public relations manager at Linfield University, in Portland, Oregon. Please welcome to the Aftergrad podcast, Kelly Williams-Brown. Well, thank you all. I am beyond honored to be the first ever guest. I can't believe that. (laughs) It's truly an honor. Thank you for taking Mm -hmm. time out of your Sunday to join us. Well, thank you all for making such a really thoughtful, great podcast that I absolutely could have used when I was fresh out of school because it was, it's a really confusing time for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And I feel like fitting for the Aftergrad podcast is hearing what the Aftergrad life looked like for you when you shortly graduated after graduating university. Yeah, absolutely. So it was, uh, it's interesting. I wasn't really thinking about this until I was coming on the show, but mm. there are really some parallels in my experience as a very recent grad and the ones that y'all and, and you know, everyone who is graduating right post-pandemic have had insofar as I graduated in 2006 um, in New Orleans and Hurricane Katrina happened my senior year the, in the fall. And, uh, you know, I was, I was gone from my college for the first semester because it was closed, although I, you know, I would go back. Um, and so when I graduated, I, I had gotten my degree in journalism with a minor in Spanish from Loyola, New Orleans. And my move was to go and take a job as a reporter at a newspaper in kind of semi-rural Mississippi. I was in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, which is southern Mississippi and was also quite devastated by the hurricane. So, you know, I would say the similarities were that it was a time when everyone carried a great deal of trauma from what had happened. We did not have sense or context or understanding of what had happened. It impact, you know, I, I used to joke that it's not a haha joke, but, um, you know, when you were dealing with people, you really had to be so careful because you didn't know if they had had a hurricane experience like mine, where I was able to evacuate beforehand, or if they sat next to their dead relative, you know? Um, and so it it was a time when you had to be incredibly careful and thoughtful. And, uh, so I took the job in rural Mississippi, uh, and it was an amazing job. I met, two women who are mentors to this day, one of whom's advice really inspired adulting. And I was incredibly poor. My take-home pay after taxes was like $1,150 a month. 
I had $300 a month in student loans and I had $500 a month in rent, which was very high at the time for Mississippi, but there was so little housing stock because so much of it had been destroyed by the hurricane. So it was an interesting time where, you know, my ability to purchase food for myself was often in question. I figured out something called uh, the Walmart check bounce grift, which is like when I was about to overdraw my bank account, I would go to Walmart and would get everything that I needed food wise. Um, And then you could write a check for $20 over the amount and they would give you $20 back in cash. Uh, and so then I would use the $20 like for gas and then I would get paid and we would repeat the cycle. It was quite difficult and I was flailing and I had lost most of my furniture in Hurricane Katrina and I felt like I was doing a terrible job at my job, the thing that I had really been preparing for and thought I was ready to do. And it was one of those women, Rachel, who was my mentor. She was, she was one of my two and she was five years older. So she was 27. And she said, you know, nobody tells you how hard this year is. Everybody is just excited that you're graduating and congratulating you. And nobody acknowledges uh, if you've been privileged enough that you went from, you know, being with living with your folks to college and sort of being under the care and guardianship of a college or at least having the structure that it provides. You're literally being told at the beginning of every semester, here is the syllabus. Here's what's going to happen. Here's what is expected of you. Here's how you do well. And then you don't have that. It's incredibly, incredibly difficult. So- where were your parents in the play? That's one thing I want to know. Curious, uh, I'm curious about mentally. Um, were you also with at home, not at home? You said you were paying rent. So yeah, no, I wasn't at home. Um, my family had moved up to Oregon. I'm from New Orleans originally. They moved up to Oregon when I was in high school. So they were up in Oregon. Um, and I was just kind of down across the country mm-hmm. by myself and it, you know, without delving into it, it, there wasn't a position where I could say, Hey, can you help me with my rent? Yeah. Can you, send some extra money, X, Y, or Z, um, just what was going on with them at the time. So it it felt very much like I had no safety net. Um, I, I did, I did ask my dad for money once and he was able to give me some because, um, my car, which was extremely required for my work. I had to drive about a hundred miles a day back and forth between these little towns I was covering. Uh, it just had a, a spectacular mechanical meltdown and the engine was ruined. And so I did ask for money at that point, but Mm -hmm. for the most part, I was really, really trying to avoid that. What did living in the moment feel like for you on a daily basis where did you make like the most out of it and were like happy on an everyday or did you find yourself like what you're describing now to be less hopeful about what your future was to bring in career wise or? Yeah. I mean, I, I think part of the reason that I did feel more okay with it was that I felt like it was very much on a step to something. And also I was having such joyful experiences at work connecting, uh, you know, with the older reporters and the editors and connecting with humans and getting the opportunity to report uh, in in Mississippi post-Katrina. That was a really fascinating, if sometimes gutting, task. Uh, But I mostly felt chaotic. I mostly felt like nothing would ever come together, uh, both externally nor internally. You know, everything around me was messy. Everything inside me was messy. And it it really was Rachel saying that thing to me about, like, you, you just have to keep going and and be here and be chaotic and trust that it is building towards something, that nothing is permanent. This too is a temporary stage towards something. I feel like as young adults, when we first graduate from college, even though we are facing these new circumstances that 
um, have us paying in so many different ways. Um, one beam of hope or source of light is through the career and like having that hopefulness that we can eventually be put out of the situation and alleviated from the financial situations through career. So would you think of yourself back then as really ambitious in the career or more so just like, I'm just going to see what happens and what life brings. And I don't really know what's next yet. You know, I was, I was very ambitious in terms of my career. Uh, and for me, that was driven. I, I mean, money has never really been interesting to me whatsoever, aside from like, I, I don't want to have to worry about it too much, you know, which is of course a really privileged thing to say because we all want to not worry about money, but you know, I wasn't particularly interested in I'm, I'm going to take over the world or I'm going to, you know, move to New York and, and edit a magazine and be on my phone 24 seven or any of that. But I, I did know that, you know, this was the first step in building that career as a reporter, which is really all I'd ever wanted is, you know, you could either go to the big city and be a fact checker, or you could go to a really small place and kind of do it all and get that experience. And so that's the choice that I made. Uh, and, you know, I, I make it sound like things were very difficult, which they were, but I also got so much joy out of finally doing the thing that I had wanted to do and connecting with, uh, you know, older, wiser reporters and editors and getting to really, when you're a reporter, you're, you're just, you go and you are present for people's stories and you listen to them and you ask them questions about what, what is it like, you know, what is this, what is that? And so as a sort of terminally, you could say curious, or you could say nosy, probably the same thing person. I, I really enjoyed that. And I think, you know, one thing is we always think whatever it is that's happening right now will happen forever. And I use the example of stubbing my toe where in that moment, I'm just like, well, now I, I'm in excruciating toe pain forever. This is my new life, you know, and it, it's hard to have the perspective that this is all forward movement. This is all only for now, whatever it is, good or bad. It's funny that you mentioned physical pain because off camera, I was talking to you about how Victoria and I met through tennis when we were in high school and we played a tournament and we kept our friendship alive. And I re recently returned to playing tennis and my shoulder became injured through an overuse injury. And I knew that I, I was just feeling extremely down and I felt as though that that pain was going to be something that might potentially carry itself throughout the rest of time because that's just the way that it feels whenever you're experiencing any type of physical and emotional pain. Absolutely. You know, and it's funny, like we can maybe talk about this like later when, if we want to talk about easy crafts, but um, you know, one, one thing that really highlighted that was that I was very physically injured multiple times. And it's interesting because you, you can't really remember physical pain afterwards, but when it's happening, it's all you can perceive. Um, so yeah. And, and probably, although I do feel like I can remember what emotional pain felt like, but, but very much, it's hard to take yourself out of the moment, out of the immediate, whatever thing is kind of screaming in your head. Do you think that could be a reason why many people, once they reach their 30s, don't really reflect or tell the story of what the aftergrad moment looks like? Because when we were graduating, the reason why we started the podcast in the first place is because when we were experiencing all that was happening in the new phase of adulting, we were like, why didn't we know that this feeling was a feeling or like this is a phase that people go through? Why is it so unspoken of? Do you think it's because they go through that pain and then they don't necessarily want to reminisce on it? <laughs> That's a really, nobody's ever asked me that. That's a really interesting question. Um, so I think two things. Um, number one, 
I do want to address part of what you just said, which is that actually the inspiration for adulting, there were many seeds, but one of the bigger ones was one of my older mentors who was name is Rachel. She was 27 at the time and I was 22. So even though that doesn't feel like any real gap now, uh, it felt huge at the time. And she said, you know, people talk glowingly about this time, you know, right fresh out of college and nobody tells you how difficult it's going to be and how hard it is and how much you will feel like you're flailing and you're not, whatever you're doing, it's not the right thing. And I'm here to tell you that you're doing okay and it won't be like this forever. And I remember the feeling of that because everybody talks about it as though it's, it's so thrilling. You're off to take on the world. And then the, the actual truth is that it's a, you know, if you've been privileged enough to be supported by your family and then then go to college, it's such an enormous, complete reorientation of, of how you live because you've been under sort of the guardianship and the guidance of either your family or in the case of school, I, a university that has really laid out a path. It's like, these are the classes you need to take in the order you need to take them. And you show up for the first day of class and you get a syllabus and it's like, here's everything that is expected of you. Here is how you do it well. This is how you do it poorly. And then all of a sudden there, there isn't any of that. There's n- there's none of that direct constant feedback of, am I doing it right? Am I doing it wrong? So in terms of why we don't reminisce, um, I I don't know where I heard this and I, so I shouldn't present it as fact, but, but it does seem emotionally to be true that the farther we get away from an event, one nice thing about the human brain is that the more warmly and positively we, we tend to remember that event, which I think is actually a mechanism that's probably really healthy for us, um, that, that the better parts of it sort of stand out and the more difficult parts fade away. Um, I haven't done that because of course, a lot of my career has sort of been centered around like really putting myself back into that moment and, and not just thinking about, gosh, wasn't it fun? Wasn't it romantic? Which parts of it really were like, there are amazing things that, about being 23 that you, you do not get again, uh, at, at other points, but also it's insanely difficult and you couldn't pay me to, to redo my twenties. They were so hard. Um, and, and we always think we, we talk about, you know, we fetishize youth and all these things and, and there's great things about being in your twenties, but you know, you really, you're, you're sort of wherever you are in your career. You're not probably where you want to be. If that's something that you want, if you're looking for partnership, you probably are running into walls there and kind of having not maybe some not great relationships. There can be like real challenges within your friendships. They can be chaotic and turbulent and you can keep hold on to people for much longer than you should in a way that maybe you don't as you get a little bit older. So I, I think just giving credence to the fact that, yes, this is very difficult. Your difficulty is not about you. Your difficulty is about this is a hard transition and a hard time of life. Well, when you say someone could not pay you enough to redo your 20s, I really, really feel that us being in the midst of, and I feel like we're in the heat of battle with our 20s because, again, I mean, I had so many questions that I wanted to throw your way, but I think really one of them, one of the things that I really like about your book, Adulting, is how you structure it very cleanly with subheaders for each chapter where you're talking about family, you're talking about love, domesticity. And I think for me, my favorite chapter is the first one that you share with us, and that's getting your mind right. So for us young folks who are currently navigating our 20s, like what are some things that we can do, Kelly, to get our mind right? So it's interesting because this was like kind of a thing when I was young, but really so nascent with social media, whereas now it's it's everywhere. Um, you know, one of the most important things 
that is that I still have to grapple with every day is that comparison is the thief of joy. You will never win when you look enviously at what at, at a very small version of what someone else is purporting themselves to be. Um, I, I think that remembering that like the world really doesn't care about you and that's not a problem because there are people who care deeply about you. And so your focus should be on those people and not, not the world at large that, that maybe doesn't. Um, I think remembering that, that whatever it is, like I said, is, is really only for now you're, you're moving through it. And I, I think one thing that would have been really useful for me. And, and again, like it's a luxury to sit here, you know, 15 years later and say, these are the ways that I've, you know, learned things the hard way in ways that really maybe I couldn't have absorbed if you told it to me then. But I think remembering that even when I come to difficulties or pain, those are things that enlarge me as a human. And I don't have to enjoy it. I don't have to treasure it or be happy it happened or grateful for it, but just the realization of, okay, this is terrible. And, and you're probably going to come out of this with something useful. So let's just like, see what we can do right now. Do that and, and set aside our feelings about whether this is good or bad or deserved or not deserved or any of that. I think that's exactly right. And I mean, I'm thinking back to something that recently happened, Victoria, you and me, we were up for a grant opportunity, actually, like there was an opportunity for us to receive $75,000 via a competition. And we had structured our realities so fixated on what that would mean for our adulthood and our next steps and what that would look like professionally, not necessarily comparing, but Unfortunately, we weren't awarded that opportunity. And I think that really is speaking. Yeah, we, I mean, we were sorry too. But what I like about what you're saying is that you don't have to be grateful for it, but you just have to kind of accept that that's where I'm at. And that's just a matter of fact of what happened. And I think that that kind of speaks to the necessity of us to like lean into finding ways to be resilient, which I know you know so much about based on your story. Yeah, absolutely. And thinking like, I, I don't have to understand this right now. You know, for me, with my experiences, I, I have noticed that usually the less I understand something in the moment, the more I end up taking away from it, which is, you know, useful. But, you know, this is this is a small example. Or no, actually, it's not. It was, a, it was a major example in my life. Um, when I was sort of in this period, this post-grad period, I... Um, I really fell in love with someone, you know, my, my boyfriend, he was my boyfriend for, you know, three years. And I had never been so certain about anything in my life than I was that this was the man for me. We were going to get married. We were going to have children. Our goals aligned. This was going to be, this, this was it. Like I, there was so many questions and I didn't question this. And then guess what? That ended. And I was bewildered by it because I had been so sure and so certain that this was it. Um, and you know, it's really only in time that I realized, okay, well, if you had married Adam, then you wouldn't have written your book. If you had married Adam, you would have probably taken a job as a public information officer for one of the state agencies. So he could pursue his political career and, and that would have been that. And instead you've had this like very fabulous and wonderful and exciting life. And, you know, things are not going to go according to your plan whatever that plan is. And, and you have to accept that maybe there's larger different plans that you do not understand and can't perceive right now. And as you say that, I, 
what I'm taking away is don't look to your sides, obviously, but mainly possibly just look up, look up to those who are older for insight into like this present state and this present moment. And also look up to our truth and to what we find love and where we find the joyful moment. So like you said, in your job, like that's where you found your passion and that's what made your day to day happy in the midst of the things that you were going through. I have a quote for you. There was a, after writing your book, I found on Penguin Random House, they stated that your accomplishments of writing the books mostly made you feel fraudulent. So as you were writing the wave of what many would consider in this moment now, like your high, what made you feel fraudulent? And what were the things that made you feel less fraudulent in that moment? Sure. So I I did feel really fraudulent, although I I don't think I was fraudulent. I had been really clear when I wrote the book that it was a reporting project. It was a thing of, I don't feel like I know these things of how to keep my house clean or how to ask for a raise at work or really what different health insurance plans are. So I'm going to go find people who do know these things and I'm going to interview them. And so the book has, gosh, at least a hundred interviews in it and probably more. Um, And but people thought that it was that I was a lifestyle guru, like Martha Stewart, and where it was very much like, no, I, I'm writing this because I'm the opposite of a lifestyle guru. I'm writing this because my my fridge smells terrible. It has something that used to be celery, and now it's like a slurry, and it smells so bad. I, you know, and so it was hard because I did want to present myself as this together person, but also. I, I'm not really a together person. I still wouldn't really call myself a together person. Um, I think there are some people for whom things come a little bit more automatically. I'm someone who ha- is neurodivergent. I have a lot of ADHD. I have bipolar too. Like there are some things that make it a little bit harder for me to find that structure, which is why I wrote the book. Yeah. So then it was really difficult when I did run into problems because everyone was like, didn't you write a book on this? And it's like, yeah, I did, but that but if you could write a book or read a book that would eliminate the pains of life, then I would be a billionaire. You know, I didn't do that. I wrote a book on things that uh, that are helpful to know as you emerge into your own adulthood, whatever that looks like. Right, right. I'm sure after writing the book though, a community at large surfaced for you to find others who related to your story of not necessarily knowing how to navigate adulthood. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I I was really lucky. I I still have so many lovely emails that still come in where people are like, This made me feel so much better. This made me feel like I could I could do it. Like it's not as hard as it seems, it's not as complicated as it seems, which was kind of my point. And it is, you know, none of it is really rocket science. But if you've never been told and you have never had time to learn to cook or to l- see what housekeeping looks like. If you've never been in the workplace, then how would you know those things? You know, it was it, it was interesting, Kelly. Like listening or reading some of the research behind behind the book. And for me, when I w- was reading the book and I finished it, you were very clear up front about the fact that it was a reported piece. Like I did not for any second think that you were trying to come out and be some sort of life expert on how to adult that was never something that I expected or got from from your words. Yeah, no, it was very clear. And then also when I was researching the fact that you were a reporter, naturally that came up. And you also have a second book called Gracious, where you're interviewing people, women, and you're talking to people that at that time were much older than you. And it was also a reported piece. And so I guess my question, Adulting, your first book, it was a New York Times bestseller. Was there this expectation for your second book 
that it was at least internally for yourself that it was going to have similar success? What was the success or the outlook? Yeah. So it's, it, you know, I, um, I was really, really, really lucky to have a crazy amount of fortune when I published adulting. Uh, you know, I, even before it came out, I was someone who was living in a tiny apartment, literally a hundred yards from an extremely busy, uh, railroad track. Like it's like the I-5 of railroad tracks. Um, and it had, I think, 23 trains per day. So all of a sudden I would be doing things like talking to Darren Starr, who was the producer of Sex and the City about like a, a TV treatment. And I'd be like, we have to put you on hold really quick. And I would put him on hold and they'd be like, honk, you know? And so even, you know, it was, it was all so yeah, it, I'm just gonna just hold on. I gotta, I gotta jump really quick. Um, so you don't think I'm about to be hit by a train, which was what it would sound like when I was in that apartment. And, you know, I, and it, it just like, it made a big splash and I was very lucky. I think I really touched on something that resonated with a lot of people, which was this feeling of everyone knows these things and I don't. Uh, and, and that feeling of fraudulence, which now there's a lot of discourse around our vulnerabilities, which I appreciate. There's so many things I appreciate about Gen Z, you know, in contrast to millennials or Gen X, but like the willingness to talk about what, what it's like and, and particularly difficulties is incredibly refreshing. Cause that, that dialogue really did, was not happening very much at all in 2012 and 2013. Um, so yes, of course. So I was like, surely every time someone writes a book, it gets translated into 14 languages. And then there's a fight over who gets to produce it with JJ Abrams winning. Like that's just the very normal experience of book writing, which it is not whatsoever. Um, there's a lot of pressure for me to do an adulting too. And I just really wasn't interested in doing it at that point. I was like, I feel like I've said what I need to say on the subject. I don't know that there's a whole secondary chapter, but there's, you know, there's also the, always the challenge with a sophomore effort. Uh, and I felt them with these and there are other kind of challenges with, that book. Uh, first off, uh, it was published in May, 2017. There was a certain election that happened in November, 2016, that made me real feel, really feel like, um, I wanted to cancel the book that civility and graciousness were no longer the most important thing. The most important thing was, was fighting, uh, what was happening, uh, at the same time, right before the book came out, I, uh, broke both my arms in separate incidents, three weeks apart. I broke this elbow and then I fractured and dislocated this shoulder. So I didn't have any arms, which made promotion difficult. Um, and that, and it really came out when I was really sort of sliding into the low place that I would lap later chronicle in easy crafts for the insane. And I feel like your narrative, I mean, the one that you portray, I think all those events that you're mentioning, I mean, there was even more things that happened too. I believe I was reading that your father was diagnosed with cancer. You broke multiple limbs and unrelated incidences. And obviously that book is very personal. Your first two books were reported pieces and this book was a memoir. And obviously here you are on our show and you were somehow able to make it through those tumultuous periods of your life. So I'm curious, just what did that pick me up phase or that period in your life when you came out on the other side look like, and how were you able to get through it? Yeah. Um, so I don't want to make it, you know, too dark on the podcast, but, but I had a really, really, really difficult, like 16 months. Um, yeah. In, in addition to the, the two arms thing, uh, later I, when I, I thought I was finally emerging, but I broke my ankle and required surgery and couldn't walk for two months, got a divorce. Trump was elected. Um, my grandmother died. My cat died. My dad was diagnosed with cancer. I was in a really, um, 
a really toxic relationship that was very bad, I think, for both of us. And I was also sort of in some really toxic friendships. Uh, and I was, I was really depressed. I wasn't leaving my house. Uh, I wasn't working. I wasn't doing anything. I was just sitting on my couch watching Bob's Burgers and having a lot of dog hair on me and then ordering Jimmy John's. Um, and it really came to a head when I was put on an antidepressant that didn't work well for me. And it sent me into like a, a really sort of dangerous state, um, like a mixed manic state where you have features of both depression, but also the impulsivity and the recklessness of um, a hypomania or a mania. So anyway, it all ended with what I called my Victorian rest cure, which is what I call being in the psychiatric hospital. You got to make it a little more glamorous. I was rest curing for four days. And then when I emerged from that, it was really the ruins of my life. You know, the relationship was over. I had experienced what was described as catastrophic loss of chosen family, which was quite accurate. Um, I didn't have a job. I I didn't have any sense of continuity from my former self who had been kind of this like bright shining star. And then I undertook sort of like a real deliberate and long period of rebuilding. It took about three years altogether, I would say. Um, and a lot of it was like really hard mental health work of like, what do I need? What are the issues here? How do we work on them? Um, how do we make sure that I'm in a safer, more supported place? Uh, some of it was the job, you know, this took a long time to get here, but the realization I finally had is that writing books does not make me happy at all. Writing books made me really miserable and it looked glamorous from the outside to people. And it was glamorous sometimes, but mostly it was just me being in my house, being stressed out, having a big job, not having people to like talk to and interact with, which I'm a very outgoing person who sort of thrives in a conversation or in a relationship. Um, and yeah. And, and so I, I'm not going to never say never, but my phase as like, I'm a personality, I'm Kelly Williams Brown Incorporated. I'm going and seeing and, you know, do, being me professionally. It's like, that was really bankrupting to me. I didn't, I don't want that. I want something where I feel like I'm working towards for something that's like larger than myself and a personal brand. Can you explain to us what grace looks like to you after writing adulting and giving us basically a rule book on what decisions, more mature decisions we can make that kind of define what an adult looks like, but also now understanding and revealing to us these new and not so um, convenient things that are happening to us, knowing that we need to be more lenient within ourselves and within the sub subset of rules that you have um, covered in the book. Like, so what does grace look like to you now as we're reading the book, adulting and going through the rule book? Mm, that's really interesting. I mean, grace is a really interesting term. It's a really old term. Uh, and it, it shares roots with like the word charisma. Um, there's a lot of like divine implication to it. That, that when we show grace, we are reflecting a, a sort of a, a divinity to others. And, you know, in, in a simple way, when I think of someone who is really gracious, I think about somebody who could be really intimidating or um, scary, but instead sort of like when you're with them, you feel like you're being brought up to where they are. And that, that bringing up of others is sort of where I see that as lying. Um, but I think there's also, you know, in addition to grace to others, there's, there's grace to ourselves and there's grace to, to acceptance, to, uh, 
to forgiveness, to trying really hard not to be either in the past or the future, both of which are unchangeable, but just to be like right here and really present, you know, for, for the people that you're with in that moment. A moment ago, you talked about no longer wanting to take yourself or present yourself to be like this personality or this personal brand, because you can find that to be incredibly bankrupting being this person that has written three books. And you came to realize that you don't like writing books as much as you thought you did. And so like what what's next for you in our bio we mentioned that you're now working in as a media manager in corporate i guess you can say but with a university so i'm just curious you're taking that role on currently right now so i'm just wondering like what's next for you and your adulting journey that's really interesting so um i love my job more than i have loved any job since i being a reporter which just a newspaper reporter isn't really an option anymore um because I, and it took me a while to find it. I, I took about six to eight months on my job search. And I really thought through all the implications of like, I, I do not want to work for a capitalist enterprise. I just don't. I'm like I said at the beginning, I'm not interested in money. I need to make, I think about 75 to 80 a year to be able to afford my mortgage, do all those things. That is a the money I'm interested in making. I don't want more than that. Um, I want to work in a place with, with good people, with people who are thoughtful and motivated and open and aware. And I don't want, you know, life is too short to work for assholes, as my mentor Lee once told me. And I wanted to be a part of something that I could really believe in, you know, and it's hard with institutions, like institutions are always going to let you down because they're people, they're made up of people and they're mostly good people in there. And then there's some bad people in there. Uh, but Linfield as a, a school reminds me a lot of the school I went to, which was just a really transformative and important place for me. And I would not say that college is the best years of my life, but it was a really transformational time in my life. It's when I sort of became the person who I am in a way that I really didn't in high school. So yeah, for me, like I've never been a morning person. I don't think anything should happen before 10 a.m. except for like sex and reading things on your phone. But I get up out of bed at like 6 a.m. and I'm commuting by 7 and I'm working late and doing extra. And I would have never thought that I would have found satisfaction in this, that, but I really do. So for me, it's kind of just listening to yourself and thinking about like not what do other people find cool or what looks impressive when you post it, but what in the day in, day out feels resonant and like it is making you into the better version of yourself. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you say that because back in 2021, when we were kind of like in the middle of the pandemic, I quit my job, Victoria was quitting her job, and we were kind of embarking on this journey to start the Aftergrad podcast. And you mentioning like the reasons as to why you're not wanting to be this personal brand yourself and why you find it bankrupting. For me, it just resonates very deeply because I'm kind of in this bind in this moment where I want to continue to move forward in my career, but as you were mentioning earlier with like the difference between like maybe a Gen Z and a Gen X or a Gen Z and a millennial, we really aren't interested in negotiating on certain values. And for me, one of those things I see so clearly a lot of these corporations choosing the bottom line over their human capital and the, the people that make the business run. And it's very depressing and misfortune to see people being laid off and not being cared for by these big brands that have millions and billions in their bank account. 
So both a thought, but then also just like an open-ended question to you, like from your experience or just guidance, what, what should we young people be thinking about? Obviously there's, there's bills to pay. There's responsibilities that we're beholden to. We might have family members that we're supporting. How do we juggle that balance of both making sure that we're financially sustainable from a personal standpoint, but also maybe not going back on some of the values that we hold near and dear to our hearts? So that's a great question. And I wish I had a really clearer answer for you than what I'm going to give. But you know, this is what I would say is that it's a luxury that I am 15 years into my career and I have the ability to sort of do a little bit of a slower job search and try to find just the right thing for me. That has not, that was certainly not the case when I was freshly out of school. And I would say, you know, I, like I said, I am very uninterested in capitalist enterprises generally and participating in them. Uh, and, but also this is where we are right now. And like you said, there are, there are very real reasons that one might need to make money that one probably does need to make money. Um, and so I think in those situations, it, you know, what I would say is it can, there can be a compromise. There can be, I really don't like what this company is doing, but for now I need to be able to take care of my mom. And so I'm going to take this for now and do this for now. And then ideally get to a place where I can do something else. Um, I, you know, I do always recommend and, and the pay is never going to be good, but thinking about, okay, are there nonprofits that I can work for? Are there educational organizations that I can work for? Are there things that align with my values that I can do? And, and one thing that I think is I'm hopeful about for the future is that as more and more millennials and Gen Z sort of come into power, they choose to create those spaces for each other, that we can sort of engage in something that looks, you know, more like mutual aid than, um, than, you know, shareholder dividends. I totally think that Gen Z, at least some of the communities that I'm a part of, I mean, there's so many new technologies and communities, you know, like Web3 and DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, just all of these different opportunities that I think are allowing. And then even still thinking about like social media, even though it has its negative connotations, I think there are really cool and interesting opportunities in which we're seeing people from Victoria and I's generation build that community for ourselves because we're just at this point where we're not trusting of these big entities. But I want to go back and kind of reminisce for a moment on the fact that you've written three books. And one thing that I really want people to leave with from this conversation is the fact that I think regardless of like where you might be at right in your career writing books or doing anything really take time right and you've mentioned that in previous interviews you've talked about it in this conversation here and so I'm just curious both with your books but then also with various moments in your career as well like what have been some of the sacrifices that you've had to make along the way and do you regret any of them it's a really interesting question. Um, I think regret is hard to talk about. I try very hard not to, I mean, not, not to really dwell in regret because there's just no point to it. Like the best you can do is think, okay, what did I learn there? What would I want to do differently this time? Next time? That's what happened. I have to accept it. There's no choice, but to accept it because there's, there's no way to alter it. Um, I think probably if I 
went back in time and made choices where I sort of stayed more in structured environments, then that would have been a lot better for me. This is not saying for anyone else because everybody, you know, as you get to know yourself, I, I tell people, don't think about what you do want. Think about what you don't want and, and avoid the things you don't want while keeping like a really wide field of opportunity or possibility in front of you, because there's lots of things that can make any of us happy. I did make a lot of sacrifices. And I think a lot of the sacrifices were sort of to my own personal happiness in thinking that this was something that clearly other people thought was impressive and other people wanted for me. And so I would do it rather than sort of thinking about, okay, what circumstances actually make you happy? That said, I am deeply satisfied with where my life has brought me. And so I, I really wouldn't want to change any of it because that would compromise where I am today, or it would, it wouldn't, it would be different, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I don't think any regrets, but I think that the, the realization that like, okay, this may sound really cool, but it, it's not for you was a good one for me to have. And it's not to say that people shouldn't write books because obviously they should, but it didn't bring me joy. Um, and it didn't bring me fulfillment and it, it happened sort of at the expense of, you know, relationships and, uh, mental health and sort of just day in, day out satisfaction. Which is so interesting to hear you say, Kelly, because at least from the research that I was doing and this conversation before you mentioned the fact that books didn't, writing a book didn't bring you joy. For me, it seemed like writing books kind of might be something that brought you a little bit of joy. It's really funny. Um, this is my dirty secret is um, I love having written something, but I hate writing. I hate writing. Everyone's like, do you love writing? Do you do it all the time? I'm like, no, I didn't even keep a journal when I was a little kid. I'm just happen to be good at it. Um, you know, so for someone with ADHD and someone who is really an extrovert and who thrives on structure and like now is the time when we wake up and now is the time when we put on clothes and we leave our house and we go and do something. Uh, to put myself in a really unstructured, lonely environment for all those years, you know, I can only kind of see in retrospect it, with the difference that, that I feel now, you know, sort of working. Uh, but, but again, that's, that's just me. And we're, it, you know, humans are deeply different and we want different lives and different things make us happy or unhappy. And I think more than anything, I recommend just, just listening to yourself and trusting yourself when you're when you're getting those messages of like, this is right for me, this is wrong for me and, and not trying to judge it by like the external rubrics. I love that last part. I think, yeah, I mean, you mentioned about comparison being the thief of joy earlier. And I think that especially with our access to other people's lives, it seems like so consistently we are doing damages to our mental health by looking at what everyone else's definition of success looks like instead of trying to define that for our own selves. But you're at this moment now you're we're like 10 years 13 years removed from you writing and then publishing adulting and then obviously you continued on and wrote a few other books but specifically with adulting i'm curious for the young gen z folks just young adults coming of age maybe they're about to be graduating the stage soon this upcoming may what would maybe be some of those lessons new or in the past that you would want to impart on that particular generation with all the experience that you've learned over the years? Avoiding what you don't want rather than trying to say, this is the one thing that will make me happy. This is where I'm going. And if I don't get there, I'm going to be a failure because for all of us, there's so much that we could do that would fulfill us. You know, I could have, I could have been a therapist. I would have loved working in HR. There's any number of sort of like relationship-based things that I also would have loved besides writing. Uh, I think 
realizing that you're in for a hard time. And then when those hard times come being like, yep, this is about where it's at. This is a hard time. I am experiencing hard things. There's not a huge shocker here. It's, it's going to be a hard time and I'm going to move through it. And I'm going to, you don't see growth in the moment. Usually it's only in retrospect, you know? So I would say, know that even though you're not getting like the feedback of like, I got an A, I did this well, you are absorbing, you are growing, you are becoming bigger and more capable, even when it really doesn't feel like it. And you won't see it until afterward. Um, and then I would say, you know, know that you're not going to be good at everything. There, I'm still not a very clean person. I really wish I was a really tidy person who kept an exquisite home. And I'm not, and I'm not going to be. And that's okay because there's a lot of great things about me. And so I can just figure out like what the minimum level is required here. And then try to do that and then and then not get twisted around the axle that I'm not a person and that I'm not a different person than myself. Yeah, I think it's just coming to show yourself grace like you promote in your book and just being at peace with the fact that you were put on this earth in a particular type of way. Sure, there's certain things that I guess we can come to change about ourselves over time, but ultimately I don't have to be good at everything. And I think that that's uh, what is really promoted throughout a lot of your story. Lastly, I was reading in an article, I think it was a Vanity Fair article, an interview that you responded to, and you were basically sharing the fact that you were in the process of applying to a grad school program. I think it was maybe a program at Lewis and Clark for a mental health counseling program. We're curious, being the after grad podcast, some of our audience members might be thinking about going to grad school after getting their undergrad degree. Can you just tell us, like, did you actually enroll in that program? Yeah, unfortunately, I, I didn't, um, which was a disappointment. And that was hard because, you know, I had really thought, okay, well, maybe being a therapist is kind of going to be my second life. And then uh, really realizing that, you know, unlike most master's degrees, this was going to take three and a half years. And I was really not going to be able to work sort of a steady job through it, given the changing hours. Um, you know, I made the decision to defer and thought, okay, well, you know, maybe that is in the future. It, it clearly right now, it's not going to work. And I tend to be someone who, when doors open, I walk through them. And when doors seem to slam shut, I try to accept that. And so I, this is not, I, I, grad school is a great idea for a lot of people for a lot of reasons. It's not a good idea if you're just like, I don't know what to do. So I'm going to spend, you know, $80,000 on something like that's yeah. not a good and we have reason, so many but, people that do that, that go down that path. <laughs> yeah, I know. And it's like, that's a really expensive way to put off trying to figure things out. And you're going to have to figure things out afterwards anyway. So right. you may as well try to do it now do a little bit. And yeah, do, do it right now. Um, and, you know, I had I had an old boyfriend who always joked that law school was for smart people who didn't know what they wanted to do. Mm, I, I like your boyfriend. So <laughs> kick the can down the road. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm sad that that's not going to happen now, but I am also aware that if I've learned nothing, it is that the future is big. It contains possibilities that we never can predict or see from where we are. It contains exciting and joyful and bountiful things. And if there's a time when it's right for me to go back to school and become a therapist, then I'm going to do that. But for right now, I feel really, really good where I am. And I'm finding the joy in, you know, in, in existing where I am. And, and that's a challenge for all of us. But the more I do it, the more I get from it. Wow. Thank you so much, Kelly, for joining us on the Aftergrad podcast. Like it just, it means a lot for both me and Victoria to be able to talk to you and for you 
being someone that has made it through the current phase that we have, we're currently navigating. It just means a lot to hear from your story and for you to share it with our audience and community members. Well, thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed being here.